Well, I'm so glad you're here this morning. We are going to be in the book of Mark. So if you want to go ahead and take your Bible and turn to Mark chapter 3, we're going to be looking at verses 31 through 35 this morning. Uh, As David said, Pastor David said way back in January when we started this series on the remarkable power of Jesus from the gospel of Mark, every Sunday we'd be talking about Jesus, and that's been true. And today is no exception. We're going to be talking about Jesus today, something that happened in his life, a continuation of what Corey's message was about last Sunday. And so let me just set the context up for you, just remind you a little bit about what's going on here in these verses. Jesus is in Capernaum. He's about 30 miles from his hometown of Nazareth, and um, he's over there in Capernaum. He's teaching. The house he's teaching in is so full that the disciples haven't even been able to eat. Uh, There's so many people stuffed in there, and and mostly they're disciples, but there are also some scribes there from Jerusalem, and they're always there to question Jesus and to try to trip him up and catch him uh, in some uh, you know, thing that's controversial or catch him in a bit of a controversy or whatever. Uh, so that never happens though, because Jesus always knows what they're thinking, but that's what's going on here. And you'll remember from last week's message that the Pharisees or the scribes have actually accused Jesus of being connected to Satan, that the power that he's demonstrated, the ability to do miracles and, and, uh, even free people from demon possession, that all that has come about because he's connected to Satan. Of course, Jesus straightens them out on all that. And, and also, what you see from the passage last week that we read is that his family is here. And his family has come for a completely different reason. They've come because they think he has lost his marbles. They think he's out of his mind. In fact, verse 21 says, when his family heard this, heard what? That he was over in Capernaum teaching, they set out to restrain him. So they've had some kind of meeting. They've had some kind of meeting together, his mother, his brothers, his sisters. They've had some kind of meeting and they've developed some kind of plan together. They're gonna do this intervention with Jesus. They're gonna go and they're gonna tell him, hey, look, just come back home and just chill out. No more public appearances. No more talking about God, that you're God and all that stuff, you know. Because the Bible says they said he's out of his mind in verse 21. So they think he's crazy. C.S. Lewis was right when he said that there's only really three ways you can think about Jesus. He's either the Lord of life as he claimed to be, or he's a lunatic, or he's a liar. Well, Jesus' family have decided that option two is what Jesus is. He's crazy. And and they've just come to rescue him, to get him out of this situation. And and that's what we see. It's it's a pretty ironic thing that Jesus' family is actually coming to save him. He's the savior of the world and they're coming to save him either because they fear for his life or because they're, he's somehow embarrassed them by the things that he's claiming. Either way, Jesus is fully aware of their secret plan. So if you have Mark three, why don't you stand with me out of reverence for God and for his word. And let me read this aloud as you follow along silently or look on the screens. This is what it says. His mother and brothers came and standing outside, they sent word to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him and told him, look, your mother, your brothers, and your sisters are outside asking for you. And he replied to them, who are my mother and brothers? And looking at those sitting in a circle around him, he said, here are my mother and brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. Thank you. You can be seated. And maybe you've read this passage before and you've thought, what in the world is Jesus talking about? What could he possibly mean here? Well, there's three discoveries that I hope you'll make this morning before you leave from these four verses. And the first is this, that the greatest opposition often comes from family. It says here that Jesus is, is teaching people. He's talking to them about the true things about God's kingdom. 
And we know that he's doing God's will. How do we know that? Because the Bible tells us over and over again that Jesus came to do God's will. In fact, in John 6, it says, Jesus said, I've come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. John also said, he quotes Jesus as saying, the one who sent me, Jesus said, is with me. He has not left me alone because I always do what pleases him. Do you remember what happened when Jesus was 12 years old and he was in the temple and his family went back home and they figured out like he wasn't with them and they go back to Jerusalem and he's in the temple and he says, why are you looking for me? Don't you know I have to be about my father's business? He was always focused on doing God's will. So that's the whole life of Jesus. He's always doing God's will. And he's doing that now, exactly what he's supposed to be doing. And oddly enough, the people who probably we would expect to be the most supportive of him are actually confused about him. They think he's lost his mind and they've come to sort of rescue him from this. Now that's odd because you think about his mother. His mother came, it says, it's Mother's Day. His mother's Mary. And you'll remember that Mary had a visit from an angel when she was pregnant. It, it was Gabriel. He said, you're going to be, you're going to conceive a child and he's going to, his kingdom is going to reign forever. And, and to Joseph, the father, an angel appeared to him in a dream and said, um, he's going to be the savior of your people, the Jewish people. So it's odd now that after all those things have been predicted to them, that they would somehow be surprised that Jesus is claiming these things to be true. Even his own two brothers, we think of them and you think of James who wrote the book of James and Jude, who wrote the book of Jude, these are Jesus' half-brothers. And though they went on after the resurrection to be great followers of Jesus, and, and one of the greatest testimonies to the resurrection of Jesus is the fact that his own brothers followed him, which is not an easy thing to do, right? And so they were convinced at some point, but not now, not at this point in Jesus' ministry, because it says in, in John 7, 5, for not even his brothers believed in him. So at this point in Jesus' life, his family Though they've been told this is who he is and this is what he's going to come to do, they're not really in full support. In fact, they're opposing what he's doing. So here you have this religious family who should know better opposing this man who's come to earth to do the will of God. Does that sound familiar? No, pun intended this morning. Does that sound familiar to you? Well, maybe you've experienced the same thing. Maybe sometimes as you sought to live for the Lord and sought to do his will, your greatest opposition came from those who love you the most your own family. I had an experience when I was 19 years of age that I, with my grandmother that I had never had before. I was on my way back to college on a Sunday afternoon in Brownwood from Tyler, and it had to go right by my grandmother's house. And, and my grandma was about 84, 85 at this time, and she had cancer, and, and I knew she didn't probably have long to live. And I hadn't seen her in a, in a while because I'd been away at college, and so I wanted to go by and see her. She lived alone, and so she always was glad to see me, and, and I was glad to see her. And, um, so I went into her house and had a visit with her. We went on our back porch and we were talking. And I'd already determined, because I was concerned for her, I was, I'd already determined that I was going to talk to her about her salvation. Because we talked about a lot of stuff, but we'd never talked about that. And I didn't know her salvation story. And so we're sitting on her back porch and I said, this was her grandmother name. It was Nanal. That's what my oldest sister blessed us with. So we got to call her Nanal. You probably have a weird grandparent name in your family too. So her name was Nanal to me. And I said, Nanal, you know, I know a lot about you, but I've never heard your faith story. I've never heard your salvation story. Would you tell me how you came to know the Lord? She goes, yeah. She goes, when I was in my early 20s, I went to a revival service at a church and the evangelist was up and, and at the end of the service, he called people to come to the front that wanted to be saved. And she said, I went down front and she said, I had this amazing feeling. And that was the end of her story. And I said, well, there's, there's more, right? And she goes, no, I just, 
I still, I still remember that feeling. That's what she said. I still remember that feeling, and I wasn't satisfied with that. I thought salvation is not a feeling. It feels really good to get saved. It feels really good after you're saved, but it's not a feeling. So what she said bothered me. So I kind of pushed a little bit, and I said, well, now I said, here's the deal. I said, I want to know about when you put your trust in Jesus. And then something happened that I fully did not expect. She looked at me, and she pointed her finger at me, and she said, I don't want to talk about this anymore. My grandmother. I mean, this woman, I've thrown temper tantrums around her when I was five and six years old, and she never spanked me. She's just gracious to me and loved me and patient with me. Mm-mm, not now. I did not expect the opposition that I got from her that day. So I tried again. I backed up, recalibrated, and thought I'll come at this a different way. So I said, well, um, I'm sorry. I'm not trying to offend you, but I said, I really care about you, and I want you to be in heaven with me one day, and and I want to make sure you know Jesus. And she said, I said, I don't want to talk about this anymore. Weird. That's the way I left the conversation that day. I got in my truck and drove to Brownwood, and I was upset. And I didn't have a cell phone because there weren't any. And so I got to Brownwood, and I called my dad on the payphone in the dorm, and I said, Dad, I said, there's something going on in that all. I said, I tried to talk to her about Jesus today, and she did not want to talk to me. And she, I left that conversation really weird. It was just really weird. And I'm, I'm kind of upset about it. And he said, don't worry, I'll go talk to her. He did. He followed up with her and he called me back and said, listen, she's saved. She knows Jesus. I said, then why does she push back against me like that? He goes, look, she's from a different generation. They just didn't talk about their faith like you talk about your faith. And I was like, well, that's just weird to me. So sometimes it's people that you're very close to that you get this sense of opposition from. Have you ever experienced that in your life? Sometimes it's like one of your parents or maybe uh, you know, somebody else in your family, like, uh, like even your spouse. There was a guy at the first church that I served out, out in Flint, Texas, Flint Baptist Church, a little bitty church at that time. And this guy came down, he actually sat on the back row, he wore a full suit. And I'd never seen the guy before. I was like, wow, I mean, that's pretty interesting. Nobody wears, even back then in the eighties, nobody wore suits to church. And he wore this suit, little country church. And man, when the pastor gave the invitation, nobody ever came down front. Well, he came down front. I mean, he got on his knees and he looked up at the pastor. He was grabbing him by the arms. And I was like, I'm on the front row. And I'm like, this guy means business this morning. He was about my age. He was in his mid-20s. Well, Steve gave his life to the Lord that morning. And he was, he was on fire for the Lord. And so I started discipling him because he was about my age. And, and he didn't really know anybody else who was a Christian. And Steve had a wife. And for the next year and a half that I served at that church, you know, I helped Steve and tried to help him over and over again. But his greatest opponent to his faith was his wife. She didn't want him to be saved. She never wanted him to go to church. She was like, I like our lifestyle. I like going to the lake every weekend and partying with you. I don't want this Jesus stuff. And he just faithfully would serve her and practice biblical principles around her. And I don't really know what happened to them. But what I'm saying to you is sometimes even the people we love the most are the people that oppose us and oppose our faith. Jesus said this, do not assume that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be the members of his household. You may have read that before and thought, what is he talking about? What is he talking about? Well, sometimes when you follow Jesus, the people in your own family are the people that oppose you the most. Have you experienced that? My brother, like, I don't know, about two weeks after I got saved, I'd come home from church camp, 15 years old, almost 16. My brother came to my room one day and he goes, you're not going to stay with this. And I was like, what? Stay with what? He goes, you're not going to keep following Jesus. He goes, it's just a camp thing. It's a camp high. And I was like, 
what's a camp high? I don't even know what you're talking about. He was like, oh, you're just doing it because all your friends are doing it. He goes, you're going to go back to being exactly the stupid person you were before this. And I was like, uh, not now. <laughs> Probably couldn't have been a more motivating thing in my life than for my older brother to tell me, you're never going to stick with Jesus. And I was like, I am now. If I wasn't then, I am now. I promise you. And then about a year later, I'm with my sister who's 10 years older than me, and I'm helping her work on her house, and I'm talking to her about Jesus. And I said, hey, tell me about your relationship with Jesus, because I don't really know that about you. We, we haven't ever talked about that. And she said, oh, well, when I was in high school, I had a really close relationship with Jesus, because all my friends did in the youth group. She said, and that's what's going on with you. She said, when you get out of the youth group, you'll, you'll, you'll quit following Jesus. That's what most people do. And I was like, okay, there's another person that thinks I'm never going to do this, you know. So they're going to be wrong because I'm going to do this. But the point is, you don't expect that from your family, from people that you love the most, that are closest to you in your life to oppose your faith. And sometimes those are the people that oppose it the most. And that's what Jesus is encountering here. He's encountering a family that's trying to keep him from doing what God has called him to do. And it's kind of weird because you think of them as being very religious and very close to God, and yet they're the people that are putting up the greatest opposition and trying to stop Jesus from what he's doing. So, so that's the greatest thing that, that, that you could, or that's the greatest opposition you might realize this morning. The second thing I want you to see is this, that the greatest obligation is not to your family. It's not to your family. Now we're here celebrating families today. We're talking about Mother's Day. We're celebrating Mother's Day. You're going to probably leave here and go celebrate your mom, and you should. You're going to hopefully take her out somewhere nice to eat and get her something really nice, or if you haven't already done that. So you're going to celebrate that relationship, and that's a wonderful thing. We, we do have a lot to be grateful for when it comes to our moms. And Jesus is not teaching us to be disrespectful to our parents. He invented honor your father and your mother, okay? So he's not about being disrespectful. But I want you to think about what's going on here. Jesus is in this house, and he's teaching these people. And his parents, his mom and his brothers and sisters are outside. And they can't get in the house, so they've sent word to get Jesus' attention that maybe he'll stop what he's doing and come outside and find out what they want and they'll grab him and throw him in the back of the van and drive him back to Nazareth or something, you know. Well, there was no van, obviously, but here's the deal. They want something for Jesus that God doesn't want for Jesus. They want him to stop. God doesn't want him to stop. God sent him here to do his will, which was to proclaim the kingdom and to preach and to heal people and to deliver people and to save people. So, if you're one of the people sitting in the house, you would probably feel this sense of tension because you think, well, if your family's outside, I would assume a couple of things. One, they probably need you for something or they wouldn't have come 30 miles, right? It's kind of an urgent thing maybe. Maybe they need you for something um, and you probably want to connect with them. You, you may not realize, they again, don't totally realize who Jesus is. You may not realize they're out there. Oh yeah, he knew they were out there. And the third thing you might assume is that, they, that his family has his best interest at heart. So yeah, why don't you, so they probably thought, hey, Jesus, why don't you just stop for a second and go out and see what they want? I mean, that's what we would do, right? If you were in the room, you'd probably say, yeah, just stop what you're doing for a second, go see what they want, and then you can come back in and continue your teaching. Jesus says something that they didn't expect and none of us expect either. I mean, basically he says this, he says, who are my mother and brothers? Well, they're out there, they're, they're right there. It's James and Jude and Mary, they're out there, you know. He goes, no, 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 you guys, you guys are my family. That's a powerful thing that he says. No, no, they're your family. Yeah, I know they're my earthly family, but you guys are my eternal family. Wow, and I'm, I'm closer to you than I am to them. Wow, now they, the disciples, that includes us. 
Because you see, Jesus says, whoever. So think about that. Jesus didn't feel a sense of obligation. And maybe that's what people in the room were thinking. Hey, you're, you're a son and a brother. You have an obligation to your family to stop what you're doing and go see what they want. That's just something you should do. And Jesus is saying, no, my greatest obligation is not to them. My greatest obligation is to my father. My greatest obligation is to his family, his eternal spiritual family. That's his obligation. So parents, let me ask you a question this morning. Is that the thing you want most for your kids? Do you want them to be allegiant to you? Or do you want them for their greatest obligation to be to serve their father, their heavenly father? See, God puts parents in kids' lives to give them a sense of love and to help them understand God's love, especially Christian parents, and to understand what it means to love God fully with their whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. But at some point, when your children trust Christ as their Savior and they become Christians and they, become a, they, they have a relationship with God, then as a parent, your greatest desire for them should be that they would do what God wants them to do. Wherever that is, whatever that is. I think so many times as a youth minister, one of the things I encountered was that Christian parents were the ones that sort of hindered their kids from growing spiritually. Some kid would come home and say, well, I feel like God wants me to do this. And his parents would say, no, 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 don't do that. Don't, that's weird. Don't do that. You're off your rocker. <laughs> you know, Kind of like Jesus' family. And sometimes it means that the dream that we have for our kids is not the dream God has for our kids. What we need to be doing as Christian parents is say, Fulfill the dream that God has for you. Let me help you discover what that is. Let me help you figure out what God's will for you is. And go do that with reckless abandon. And I will be back here supporting you 100%. And if that means that you end up living somewhere else in the country or somewhere else in the world, it's okay. Because I would rather you do God's will than anything else. That's what Christian parents ought to approach parenting as. As a way of saying, look, I'm here to nurture you and help you get there. But then I want you to go do that with reckless abandon. Go serve the Lord. Jesus said this, the one who loves a father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. The one who loves a son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. There's a proper order, and God's at the top of that list. And family's under that list. And it's not that we're supposed to be disrespectful to our families, but the reality is our greatest obligation is not to our family. Our greatest obligation is to serve the Lord. I have a friend who was, uh, well, he was total polar opposite of me. Growing up, we were best friends. For example, he was an Eagle Scout. I was not. He was a straight-A student. I was not. He was great at athletics. I was not. He was good at everything. He was Mr. Everything 4.0. He goes off to A&M our first year of college, and he's in the Corps. And guess what? He's freshman of the year at the Corps. Of course he is, right? And he's going to be an engineer because his dad's an engineer. And his dad is so proud of him. His dad's a member of a church where I went and just so proud of him. Well, somewhere along the way that freshman year, there's, there's some stuff going on in my friend's life. And I wasn't close to him that year because I was entirely going to TJC and he was at A&M. And again, there were no cell phones, so we weren't really texting back and forth or anything. So not a lot of communication there. And so my friend had this secret in his life that nobody knew about, including his parents. And his secret was this, that over the course of that year, God was calling him into ministry to be a minister, to not be an engineer, he had to figure out how to tell his dad that. His dad, who loved the Lord, wanted him to be an engineer. <laughs> so proud of him. He had to come home from school and tell his dad, hey, dad, I don't think this is what I'm supposed to be doing. And I want to transfer. I don't want to be at A&M anymore. Oh, wow. Well, now you're messing up, boy. So, you know, don't want to be at A&M anymore. Where do you want to go to school? I want to go to Howard Payne. Where? What? 
So he transferred to Howard Payne. His greatest obligation was to do what his heavenly father wanted him to do, not what his earthly father wanted him to do. His dad got over it. He figured it out. But it was not easy. And what I discovered is that his own father, when he was 18, had been called into ministry and said no to God. So the reality is, I'm not saying all your kids are called into ministry, but our job as parents is to help them find out what God's will is for their lives, to help them get there and to nurture that in them, not to create a greater allegiance to us. That's not our role as Christian parents. Our, our, our job is to get them to love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. So I think most of our families are probably there. But if you're not, I want to encourage you today to encourage your kids to do that. The third thing I want to share with you this morning is this, that the greatest opportunity that any of us have is to do God's will. Jesus said something amazing in verse 35. He said, whoever, 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 whoever does the will of God is my brother, sister, and mother. Jesus is saying that he's, he's closer to his spiritual family than he is to his own physical family. He's not suggesting, though, and I want you to, make, I want you to understand this and get this very clearly. He's not suggesting that you can become a part of his family by doing good stuff. Well, it says here, wait a minute, if you if you're do God's will, then you'll be my mother, brother, sister, and my family. Yeah. But if you don't know the Lord, God's will for you is that you trust in Jesus. That's what he's talking about. Not that you do a bunch of good works, because you can't do a bunch of good works and make yourself right before God. Nobody can. So he's not saying that. What he's saying is, I'm elevating this relationship that I have with my followers, people who've put their trust, who've entrusted their whole life and eternity into my arms. I am, I am, I'm elevating my relationship with them above my own earthly family. And that ought to really comfort you because that means that God, through Jesus, wants to have that close personal relationship with every one of you. The question is, are you exercising that today? If you've already trusted Jesus, are you exercising that? That's God's will for you, is that you would have that close relationship. So if you've never trusted Jesus as your Savior, what Jesus would say to you today is that's God's will for you. Nothing better you can do, nothing more important you can do than to put your faith in Jesus Christ. That's your greatest opportunity in life is to come to know Jesus. And I love the fact that he uses the word whoever here because that includes you and me. That's all of us. Whoever, anyone, he's saying, can know me through putting their faith in Jesus Christ. Maybe you're a skeptic. Maybe you attend church, but in your heart of hearts, you're really skeptical about who Jesus is. You're not completely convinced that Jesus is the Son of God, the Savior of the world, and therefore not necessarily worthy of your full surrender to him. Well, you're not alone. Lots of people have been there. There's a great passage of Scripture that Jesus shares in John 7. It says this in John 7, 16 and 17, because the Pharisees were questioning Jesus about where his teaching came from because they could never outsmart him. <laughs> he always knew more than them. And they're like, how does this guy know so much? So Jesus said this, <clears throat> my teaching isn't mine, but is from the one who sent me. If anyone wants to do his will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own. That's a really powerful verse. Um, Jesus is saying that whoever's willing to do my will, the will of my father, then he will know. He will know whether or not I came from the Lord. So it starts with your heart. Are you willing to know to do what God wants you to do in your life? This verse really changed my life because about a year into my Christianity, I had a lot of doubts. <coughs> Excuse me, I doubted my salvation. I doubted that Jesus was God. I doubted that the Bible was true. I didn't even know if there was a God. And I did all of that in isolation because I was too afraid to tell anybody what I was really going through. I didn't want my friends to find out because I was afraid I'd make them doubt. <laughs> so I kept all that to myself and I just struggled for a year. And then I read that verse in John 7. 
that's basically a question and a promise. The question is, are you willing to do God's will? And I could say wholeheartedly, yes, I want to do God's will. But I just don't know who God is. I'm not sure who God is. So Jesus said, well, then I'll make you a promise. And the promise is this, that if you're willing to do my will, I'll convince you that that's who I am. That was a great comfort to me. No one had ever shared that promise with me. I saw that in God's word and I was like, okay, I can just kind of relax him because that year was, for me was full of fear and anxiety. I was like, I don't know, what, I don't have any, any rock to build my life on here. And so for me to know that promise from God was so encouraging because I was like, okay, God's promised that he'll convince me. And you know what he did? Over the next few months, he convinced me fully that he was the son of God, the Messiah, the savior of the world sent to save every one of us from our sins. And ever since then, because I went through that, I've never struggled with doubt again. Praise the Lord. It was a very hard year. But the reality is, some of us are there, we're skeptical. We're not sure. Well, Jesus makes you a great promise if you're a skeptic. If you really want to know if he's from God, if he's the Savior of the world, the question is, are you willing to do his will? So if I could answer all your questions, would you submit to him? Would you serve him? Would your greatest obligation be to him? Would your greatest allegiance be to him? Would your greatest love be for him? That's the question. And if the answer to that's no, then you'll probably never know. Because the reality is, it starts with your heart. And so this morning, like every promise in the Bible, it comes true. You find it coming true in your life. John 6 and John 7 were really important chapters in my life during that time. I read them all the time. Well, in John 6, it makes very clear, again, what God's will for Jesus is. In verse 39, it says this, This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose none of those he has given me, but should raise them up on the last day. Jesus is saying, that's God's will for me. God's going to bring people to me. He's going to draw people to me, John 6 talks about. And when he draws people to me to save, I'm going to save them because that's what he sent me here to do. And I'm going to do it perfectly. And I'm going to do it for every single one of them. In fact, he says in another verse, I will not cast them out if they come to me for salvation. So I'm going to do it perfectly. I'm going to hold on to every single one of them, regardless of how bad or scandals they are, <laughs> because, because that's who I am. I'm a perfect Savior, and I'm going to hold on to them till the last day. That's God's will for Jesus, and Jesus always did God's will. So that's God's will for Jesus. Here's God's will for you. Go up 10 verses above that, and John 6, 29, it says this. This is the work. Okay, so let me give you the context real quick. The, the context is this. The people at this particular time had followed Jesus, and Jesus got in a boat and went to the other side of the, the Sea of Galilee, a lake. And he got over there and the people were like, we got to get to Jesus because he just fed them, four or 5,000 of them with just nothing, basically, a few fish and loaves. And they were like, we ate, it was good, you know? So they follow all night, they go around the lake and they come to where Jesus is. And Jesus says, don't work for the food that perishes. You guys just followed me because I fed you. <laughs> That's the only reason you came over here on the other side of the lake is because you got free food. He said, don't work for the food which perishes, but work for the food which endures to eternal life. And so they ask him the question. They go, okay, Jesus, what do we have to do? What is the work of God? And this is what he says in verse 29. He could have said anything. He said, he could have said, keep the Ten Commandments. He could have said, go to church every Sunday of your life. This is what he said. This is the work of God, that you believe in the one he has sent. That's it. That's all you can do. That's all I can do. And belief is not this mental ascent of, I believe Jesus was a historical figure. No. Belief is this idea of fully entrusting yourself, fully entrusting yourself to Jesus, putting all your chips on Jesus, saying, I'm going to bet my entire life and eternity on Jesus Christ, which means I'm not going to bet on any other religion. And it means I'm not going to bet on my own goodness. I'm going to put all of it on Jesus because I believe he's who he said he is. That's biblical 
faith. That's what trust is. And Jesus said, if you do that, you're doing the will of God. You're therefore going to be in my spiritual family forever. So this morning, the question is, is that you? Because you see, Paul also said a whoever. He said, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So that's probably most of you in this room have done that at some point because you believe in Jesus. The most logical thing you could do is say, Jesus, I believe you're the Savior of the world, so save me. I'm calling on you to save me. I'm going to give you the chance to do that this morning. Many of you have already done that. So here's what I want to ask you to do. I want to ask you just to bow your head and close your eyes for a second just to block out distractions. we got plenty of time. We're not in a hurry this morning. I'm going to ask no one to leave. It's okay. Just stay put for just a second. If you've never put your trust in Jesus Christ, then God's will for you is simply this, that you trust Jesus fully and completely. That's it. And when you do that, he's going to give you a gift, eternal life. He's going to do it because he loves you. The Bible over and over again talks about the love of God for you. For God so loved you that he gave his one and only son that whoever would believe in him, there's that word, trust in him, would not perish but have eternal life. So yeah, when you put your trust in Jesus Christ, it feels good because you get a lot of great benefits from that. You get to go to heaven when you die. You don't have to pay for your own sins. All your sins can be forgiven and you can be made right with God. So right here in this room with nobody looking around, if you're a believer, I'm gonna ask you just to pray for the people that are sitting around you and those who are watching online this morning. But if you've never asked Christ to come into your life, then let me give you the opportunity to do the greatest thing in the world and that is put your trust in Jesus Christ and be saved. So if that's you, would you raise your hand? I'm the only one looking around, I hope. <laughs> Thank you. Somebody else, just raise your hand because it's the greatest decision that you could ever make and it will not just change your life, it will change you forever. You guys that raise your hand, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lead you in doing exactly what the Bible says and that's calling on the name of the Lord. There's no magic words. There's no sinner's prayer. It's just simply saying to God that you want him to save you, that you want Jesus to come into your life and save you. You can use your own words or you can repeat after me, but, but let me lead you. Just say this to the Lord, dear God in heaven, I believe that Jesus is the Savior of the world, that he's exactly who he said he is. And I believe that the only thing I can do to be saved is to trust him. And so this morning, I want to put my full trust in Jesus Christ to save me forever. And I, I repent of my sin. I don't want sin in my life. None of it. What I want is to be saved more than anything else. So thank you for loving me. Thank you for saving me now. Now, God, help me do your will for the rest of my life, the things that you bring before me. For I pray in Jesus' name, amen.